You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So, picture this. Out there somewhere is like, you know, Jack Armstrong, Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. (laughs) And the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think, they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Nobody makes up anything. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time, to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't, further down the line. My guests today are Joan and Anne Watts, the two eldest daughters of the brilliant countercultural icon and philosopher Alan Watts, who is a prolific public speaker and writer of numerous books, most notably on Eastern philosophy, such as The Way of Zen, The Wisdom of Insecurity, and The Book on the Taboo of Knowing Yourself, among many others that he wrote in his relatively short life. Alan Watts had a radio show on KPFA in Berkeley. He died in 1973, and with lots of his talks freely available on YouTube, his popularity and the relevance of his message is now greater than ever. My guests, Joan and Ann Watts, have put together a wonderful new book, The Collected Letters of Alan Watts, which we'll be talking about. I really, really enjoyed the book. It really turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful read. And as I began the book, 
I felt very affected by a feeling of great love and appreciation as if I was opening up and reading something that was fully alive with living presence. And I felt like I was being greeted or I was being met or I was meeting. It's lovely. So how did this collection of your father's letters come together in, into this book? And what was it like reading through and reflecting on all these letters? We inherited Alan's papers on the death of his widow, Mary Jane Watts, back in 1992. And these papers came to us in files that were damaged by water and quite a mess. They had been in a storage area that had been flooded at one point. And so we basically had to go through and sort out what was unreadable and what was readable and make sense of the files. And I actually hired somebody to help with that because I was working at the time and it was, you know, just a daunting task to go through all the papers and decide what was salvageable and what wasn't. And then the papers were put in a file cabinet and... I would occasionally go to the file cabinet to look up things for publishers or legal things or any number of different things that might come up. And I, you know, of course, would notice that there were letters in there. And But again, I had moved from the Bay Area to Montana, and I was working in Montana and was really embroiled in my own life so much that I, I didn't really have time to look at that. And... When I turned 75, I became more aware of it. I retired from my business at that time. And then Ann and I met down here in Marin County with the publisher New World Library that had been republishing some of Alan's out-of-print books and happened to mention that we had letters. And he perked up right away and said, letters? So what do you think we could do with those? Could we print them, publish them? And, of course, we said, well, yes, that would be a grand idea. And he said, well, we'd need to find an editor. And I said, well, I think we can handle that. So he very kindly gave us permission to go ahead and advance. And it took us two years, a little over two years. We first of all, Anne visited me in Montana, and we spent a week going through just about every file in the cabinet and pulling letters that we thought would be Appropriate. And Alan had made carbon copies over the years of most of his correspondence. And in addition to his carbon copies of correspondence to many, many friends and peers and so on, was a file full of letters, original letters, that he had written to his parents. He had written them once a month, pretty much all his life. And he died, of course, when he was 58, but his father died at the age of 93, a year after Alan died. So that was the, pretty much the scope of content of wonderful, wonderful letters to his parents that were very descriptive about his thinking, about what he was doing, what we were doing. Um, quite, quite wonderful, as you've probably noticed when you've been reading the book. So that was kind of how it came about, and it was an amazing adventure, and... I'll turn it over to Anne there to explain more about how we felt in the process and what we learned. Um, so one of the big things that really struck both Joan and I was how brilliant he was starting at such a young age. 
I know for myself, when I was reading some of his early letters from the United States, back to his parents describing his experience here and what he saw, I'd have to stop and figure out how old was he when he was writing this, because his grasp of the language and how he expressed himself, I thought was just extraordinary. And Joan and I both deeply appreciated that part of Alan, just how the wisdom and the the breadth of his ability to express himself really beautifully. And another thing was that often he writes almost as if he's painting. When he's describing the countryside and all of that, it's like you're right in the picture of it. And that was also striking. And as we went through the history, for me, I discovered a validation of my beliefs about my childhood, which was a very difficult one. And so it was like confirmation because I'm very aware that memory is very suspect. And we don't always remember things as they were, but we carry memories inside us which affect us. And so it was interesting to have my memories confirmed and also confirmed by Joan, who was four years old, is <laughs> four years older than me. And I found that it was very bonding for Joan and myself as we went through this process. It was quite deep. So what were your earliest memories of your father and of doing things with him and what he was like for you? as a father. And again, I, I think we could start with Joan since you were the first person on the scene. Well, it was a little bit different for both of us, I think. But for me, you know, the first 10 years of my life, he was part of my family. And when I was 10, my parents got divorced. But he was really a, a wonderfully warm person and fun to be with. He liked to have fun and enjoy life and so on. And when he wasn't busy studying or writing a book or something, he would be somewhat available and do fun things. I remember as a small child, I couldn't have been much more than four or five at the best. There was an old barn on our property in Evanston that he went inside and he painted the interior with these amazing, fanciful monsters and stuff. And it was a great play area for the neighborhood children, and we would climb in and out of the windows, and he would come out and bring us sandwiches and that type of thing, and that was a lot of fun, and we would go to the beach sometimes on Lake Michigan, and that was another really fun time playing in the surf and so on. So those are things that I remember as a child. After that, it was off to boarding school, and I saw very little of him in the next 10 years of my life. And do you want to describe your Um, (laughs) Well, I have memories from when we were little of being on the beach in Evanston. And I also, interestingly, I described the house that I first remembered to Daddy, and he was stunned that I remembered actually the house that we were living in when I was born, because we moved out of that house not so long after I was born, I can't remember how old I was when we moved, but before he could imagine that I would have that memory. And then the next memory that I have 
was when I had scarlet fever. And I was in the hospital in an isolation ward. And Daddy was allowed to come and visit me because he was a priest. Otherwise, they didn't let people into the isolation ward. So I remember him coming and bringing me balloons and entertaining me on his visits. So those were a couple of my really early memories. Other than that, often I found he wasn't available a lot because he was working. And so he was either busy at his typewriter writing or he was gone. He was at his office or he was gone on a lecture tour or something like that. And when he was around, my experience of him was that he was very playful. And one of my favorite little girl memories of him when we lived in Evanston was that when we had eggs in the morning, he would make boiled eggs and he would draw different characters on each of our eggs because we liked our eggs cooked different times. And I loved those drawings. He was such an artist. And so that's another one of my favorite memories from when I was a kid. Now, I've, I've heard that he thought he would be an artist before he got into all the religious and spiritual studies. Well, that's what he told me. That was what he thought, was that he'd be an artist. And he didn't realize he was going to be a writer. Definitely had a, an artistic bent to him. His drawings, even as a, a young preteen, which uh, several in the book, or at least, yeah, I guess there are two of them in there. There's a chess game that he made an illustration of that's amazing, that all the chess pieces have come alive, and they're having this big battle on the chessboard, which is a lot of fun. And then his procession of rabbits, and I think it's the first letter in the book, which it was a, a birthday gift to his father that, you know, he wasn't there because he was away at school, and so therefore he was going to give him a procession. And the procession is just wonderful. It's, it's this group of rabbits in, dressed in armor and carrying a litter with the head rabbit sitting in it with a very stern look on its face, and the expressions are so funny. <laughs> and it was just very clever. And done in pen and ink, which is, you know, a very unforgiving medium. So it, it was a sort of great artistic talent. So how did he get into his religious and spiritual phase of his life? How did that begin for him? And do you want to answer that? Well, I think that he really got interested in Buddhism when he was at the King School, Canterbury. And he found some books that were of interest to him. And a family friend had an amazing library. And Alan got really into some of the books in that library. And in one of the books, he found a pamphlet for the Buddhist Society in London. And so he connected with them. And then he sent them a pamphlet that he had written about Zen. And they were so amazed by this writing that they invited this author from King School to come, expecting one of the professors. And instead, in walked a 15-year-old lad <laughs> to talk to the group. And they went on to publish that article that he wrote. And he and his father both became members of the Buddhist Society. And so that was kind of like the beginning of that interest. 
And he had a voracious curiosity. And so he would read about religions from all over the world. And I mean, even back then he was studying Christianity and he was in a highly Christian school. So the Church of England was the school which is very similar to our Episcopalian church, which is the church that he eventually became a priest in for a period of his life. But I think he related to Buddhism more than anything else. Eastern religions and philosophies he he reveled in. Yeah. He also had a photographic memory from what you've written. And I wonder if that had anything to do with the tremendous confidence he had to talk about all of this and to talk with people much older than him and with much more experience than him. Yeah, I think that's true. I I think there's some validity to that. I was just amazed at how he wrote to Carl Jung when he was in his 20s like an equal. And he always wrote to Christmas Humphreys like an equal. And he had some knowledge that Carl Jung didn't have, and he was offering him that knowledge. And they really developed a relationship over time. So, yeah, he was always like an equal to whomever he was speaking with. It was more about an exchange of ideas than anything else for him. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Joan and Ann Watts. They're the eldest daughters of Ellen Watts, and they have just put together a wonderful new book, The Collected Letters of Ellen Watts. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. He seemed to have a genuine insight into these things that is very unusual for someone so young. Well, I think he had a pretty incredible intellect all the way around, and, you know, one could ask how that happens. I I think partly, too, he, he was born into a situation where he was the only child of older parents, and they pretty much doted on him and fostered any of his interests. His mother was a very talented needle worker, and... She also taught what was called back then gymnasium to young girls in a private school situation whose parents were off in the Orient as missionaries, and they would bring back wonderful art objects from China and Japan and so on as gifts for her. And so his childhood was surrounded with beautiful embroideries from Asia and pottery from China and some paintings and so on from Asia as well. So that was part of his growing up experience. And his father would read him incredible books. You know, he, as a young child, had all the Rudyard Kipling books read to him and so on, which fostered his imagination. And, you know, I, th- I think he was the kind of child that parents spent a lot of time with and encouraged their learning process, and it certainly showed up. But, I mean, he, he seemed to have a very deep spiritual insight into the essence of things from a very young age. That that's, that's what seemed so unusual and precocious, in addition to his brilliant intellect or that seemed to be beyond just his intellect? I think that's true. And 
I'm saying that kind of like, yeah, I think that's true. And I only know about when he was older, when we had a mutual friend who told me a story about a time when she was with him in Mill Valley and he was doing some counseling with her. And during the session, he suddenly reached forward and put his hand on her knee. And he said, I don't want you to be afraid, but in a moment, we're going to have an earthquake. Sure enough, in a moment, they had an earthquake. And she was just stunned that he knew before it happened that it was going to happen. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that, that animals know. You know, they know ahead of time. And somehow he was tuned in at a whole nother level that most of us aren't tuned in at. And so I just love that story, you know, because it talks about that deeper level that he had. So he did a tremendous amount of writing and speaking, but he started off writing. He seemed to be obsessed with the process of putting into words things that he readily admitted were things that couldn't be expressed in words. I think that that was very, very true. He really had a gift for being able to explain the unexplainable. And I think that that was one of the things that made his writing so popular was that he could very clearly demonstrate just about anything with words. And the process of that, I'm not sure how one acquires that, but he certainly had it. And I think is, again, why his writing became so popular and his speaking. I never read any of his books, but I've listened to numerous talks of his over the last few decades. And one thing that really struck me about his speaking style was his playfulness and his sense of humor. Yeah, that was a strong part in him. And, you know, I think that was the the thing that was really lovely for Joan and myself was that playful nature and how much fun he could be to be with. And, you know, his philosophy was for us to take ourselves lightly, you know, and he certainly tried to do that in his own life and be an example of that. So, yeah, that playful nature was very, very evident. And it was one of the things because he was so very human and so along with his brilliance, he had his foibles and he was very strongly against people putting him on a pedestal. He didn't want to be on a pedestal. He didn't want to be the guru. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is that he didn't tell people how to live their lives. He wasn't preaching you should be this or you should do that or whatever. He was just talking about all these different ideas and being playful with it at the same time. And he liked to play with the ideas. He liked to see what he wanted to do, what he what worked for him, what didn't work for him, all of that. And he did that in so many areas, like with food. He loved to cook, and he was a gourmet cook. And, I mean, just he loved to cook all different kinds of food, and that was always a great joy. He loved music. He loved dancing. He loved to sing. You know, he just had a passion for life. Mm-hmm. 
And I love that you use the word foibles because that's what I had written down. That he just loved to laugh at our foibles and the foibles of humanity, but never from a condescending place, but from a really kind, loving, and compassionate place, probably coming from a place of self-recognition, you know, coming from his own extensive catalog of foibles. I, I guess, you know, I would have to agree with that. You know, he had to experience some pretty difficult stuff in his, his own life and come to grips with it and accept it as who he was and that people should also do that, that you can't beat yourself up about what you've done that you need to move on, take it as a growing experience or with a grain of salt, depending exactly on what it was. But I think that he he just really felt that we shouldn't be tied up in knots about life, that we, we need to enjoy life and that we should be also legally allowed to enjoy life to a certain extent. And it was very much against laws that interfered with our personal ability to do things that we would enjoy, like morality laws and making LSD and marijuana illegal, things like that. So I think that he just really wanted to experience life and wanted to encourage everybody else to experience life to its fullest. So when you said that he went through some very difficult things. Are you referring to the challenges he had with his marriages? Yes, definitely. I I have to say, I was really fascinated by the letters about all of that, including the series of letters with Jano. Right. That was a very interesting series of letters where he was so exuberant, and it was really fascinating to to be reminded of that kind of experience of being in love. Well, I'm glad you felt that way. I I think Anna and I felt like it was almost too much information. But, yes, I think in one of my commentaries, I made some sort of comment about how he was a besotted teenager in love with Jano. And it was obviously, well, there were no other love letters that were found in the files other than one that he wrote to Dorothy, sort of, I think, under pressure of his conscience about his relationship with Jano. And, you know, because of that, we really didn't have anything to compare it to in terms of letters to our own mother or other letters that he might have written to Dorothy at some time. But it was definitely out of character with the other letters in a way. There was one letter that he wrote to the poet Jean Burton that his whole correspondence with her was on a more intellectual plane, really, than even with Jano. With with Jano, it was definitely the heat of love they were experiencing and that he couldn't wait to see her, couldn't wait to do this or that. And it was definitely a, a different tenor than it was with either the one letter we saw with Dorothy or the other letters that were written to Jean Burton. I remember thinking, particularly with Dorothy, I I couldn't understand why he married her. That didn't seem to make sense, particularly considering the way she was with the two of you, and in particular with Anne. Well, that, that was a mystery to us. You know, I think 
uh, I shouldn't butt in here, and you, you might want to say something more about this, but I think that he, I mean, we, we pleaded with him not to marry her, and, and a lot of his friends did as well. And certainly it was like trying to put a round peg into a square hole. I think his desire to marry her was kind of a last-minute decision because he wanted to keep custody of us, and back then that would be an issue if he wasn't married and have a spouse. So, and you should comment further on that, I think. Well, definitely, I think he felt like he had to be married to have Joan and myself in his custody. And he felt very strongly that he wanted to protect us from Eleanor because of how she was treating us, in particularly me. And I don't think he had any idea how much Joan and I had not liked having Dorothy as a babysitter. Back then when she was babysitting us in Evanston, it was mostly that she just didn't have any sense of humor. And that, you know, there was no playful quality to her. And so there was was no heart connection. And so he did marry her. And then, you know, I think she tried, but I think she didn't know how to be a good mother. And I think she had not had good parenting models for her. And she was very rigid and very disciplinarian. And, you know, both my mother and my stepmother took their unhappiness out on me was my experience. And, you know, I just became the pivotal point for their unhappiness. And so, you know, my life was no fun. But, you know, I... I agree. <laughs> I've always had this thought that Alan had better taste in mistresses than he did in wives. Very true. <laughs> we always said he had the Pygmalion complex, that he would marry these women with the idea that he could make them happy, which was a grave mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even including our mother, all three women that he married were, I would say, almost basket cases <laughs> in terms of their ability to be happy in life. They all had things that, you know, that made them unhappy as they were growing up and that they never quite came to grips with. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Joan and Ann Watts. They're the eldest daughters of Ellen Watts, and they have just put together a wonderful new book, The Collected Letters of Ellen Watts. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Your family life was very complicated with your mother out of loneliness and despair. She ended up having an affair with a young music student that she ended up marrying and and having a child with. And Alan had a very liberal perspective on those kind of things. And at one point, they were all living together in the same house, which ended up causing quite a scandal. Right. I can remember as a child that I had this one girlfriend that lived across town, and I was allowed to go to her house to play, but she was not allowed to come to my house to play. So that kind of gives you the idea of what the community thought. (laughs) It's interesting. I wasn't as aware of the circumstances in that way. And, you know, my experience, of course, was that Carlton, the young student, He became a real friend for me and someone who would listen to me and be empathetic with me, and I adored him. 
And in fact, I adore him to this day. He's just a lovely human being. You know, he was one of the saviors in my life to have somebody who could understand what I was going through at some level. That's what I remember about him being there. He was present. And I remember at the time, Alan writing letters back to his parents. And conspicuously, all of that stuff was left out until at one point he announced that Eleanor was doing the business of having his third child. And of course, that was Carlton's son. And Alan had very different views on morality and family and sex and things like that. Could you talk about his views on those things? It's my thought about it that he did a lot of reading of people like Margaret Mead and others who wrote about how things were in other cultures. And he was really drawn to that more open sexual lifestyle. He didn't believe that human beings were made to be mated for life and one-on-one and He felt like there was a sort of imprisonment in that. And so I think that kind of philosophy was really attractive to him. And that's what he wanted to live. And so I think that was kind of the source of it. He really didn't believe in the more rigid moral construct at all. And that came as a shock to Eleanor. She didn't expect it. I think this kind of grew on him during the time they were together. I don't think it's how he entered the marriage. And I also, you know, you, you're talking about the letters to his parents. I was very aware that he was being very diplomatic in writing to them because, of course, they would not have understood his beliefs at all. And so he never talked to them about, you know, what he was doing that would exacerbate our mother's unhappiness, you know, that kind of thing. All of that was kept on the QT. And he talked about Eleanor going, our mother going to Reno to get a divorce, when in fact what she did was she got an annulment to the marriage. But he didn't want to have to explain that to his parents. Far easier to say that she was getting a divorce. And when you say an annulment instead of a divorce, you mean because of on the grounds of his philandering, so to speak? Yeah. I think it was more on the grounds of his not acknowledging to her somehow that he had a different belief in terms of what marriage was. It wasn't so much on the basis of philandering, but just that he didn't allow for her to know specifically that he believed in free marriage or freedom to love whoever you wanted, but still be married, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is what he wanted, but mm-hmm. and he was probably he in... really didn't want to have a divorce or he didn't want to be separated. He wanted it to continue as it was and that she would continue to be the wife of the chaplain of the university and so on and so forth. And obviously that wasn't going to work out for her. <laughs> right, as it doesn't work out. In his out. mind, he could have lovers, and she could have lovers, mm-hmm. as in Carlton, and they would live together as a married couple. But, of course, that didn't fit her pictures at all. And in her distress, 
she went to a priest in New York for help and counseling and guidance. And of course, most people in the priesthood would say, no, that's a, that's a sin, that's a terrible thing. And, you know, I think what Joan said is, is actually really accurate, that it was his belief that Eleanor was getting the annulment from. So, yeah, very complicated. I think the other thing to remember, too, is that he grew up being very influenced by European mores. And in those days, certainly, I don't know how it is now, but European men in most countries in Europe and even places like South America and so on would be married. And it was accepted that they would have mistresses. And in some countries, women took on younger men to teach them about loving. (laughs) So... Here in the United States, all of that had become very puritanical and was not accepted behavior. And his wives were very deeply hurt by it all. And he said that he drank because he liked himself better drunk. And I think that you implied that he felt a lot of guilt for the pain that he caused his wives. Possibly. I'm not sure that that I would say that, that he liked himself better, yes, he did say that, but to say it because he gave so much pain to his wives, I'm not sure that that would be true. You know, I don't know. I think he felt guilt about it, perhaps, but I don't think he really was guilty about it. What do you think, Anne? I quoted you saying that to me, and I surmise that that is a piece of the picture that he felt guilt. I mean, he was a very compassionate man, as we've said earlier. And, you know, the fact that this was so painful for Eleanor and for Dorothy, I think that was painful for him. And he didn't know how to be other than how he was. I mean, I loved Jean Burton's quote when she said, women were like catnip for Ellen. And I think that, you know, that just struck home for me. Mm -hmm. I think there was a lot of that. And, you know, I think in some ways he was acting out what he never got to express as a teenager in terms of discovering his own attractiveness to women and being able to be sexual and to be free with different women. But as you say, it was painful for the women that he was with. I have this thing, you know, with Eleanor, it unfolded and it was very painful for her. With Dorothy as someone who was his mistress before, I developed this theory of if a man is having mistresses and you're one, don't expect him to change his stripes. He's not now going to be monogamous with you. And so I felt like with both Dorothy and with Jano, you know, if you're a mistress, that's very much likely the kind of thing you're going to experience with that man. Mm-hmm. He's going to have other mistresses. Mm-hmm. And probably guilt is not the right term. It was just being a, a deeply compassionate person, he felt their pain and he felt yeah. the responsibility of it by his actions. But he was who he was and he wasn't going to change that. And I think he knew that. But he had to live. He had to live with the contradiction because he he laments on the morality of our society and talks about how our 
notion of the traditional family is obsolete. And I think he was hoping to perhaps influence people to plant seeds to change all of that. And I think that perhaps may be happening to some degree, or at least that people are questioning these things. I really like the way you just put that, Tomio. I think that I think that sums it up really well. And and I think in some segments of our culture, it, some of that is changing. And in other segments of our culture, people are hanging on really strongly to the old, more Victorian views. So it's again, that's a complex issue within our own culture. Mm-hmm. And he was well aware of that in his time, and things have gotten even more pronounced, more polarized in those ways today. And back in his time, the younger generations, I think, were very drawn to his ideas and to his very liberal views of cultural morality, of not buying into the trap of cultural tradition. Well, I, I think that's true, but, you know, I also think that that's happening again today because his popularity has taken a great surge among younger people. And I think that because of that, and, and it's not just in this country, it's worldwide, I think that it's going to be interesting to see if there's some influence of change as regard to all of that with the interest that young people currently have in his writing and lectures. We certainly could use a paradigm shift at this point. So it's possible, you know, that there will be a new awakening to how we perceive and how we treat each other. And he certainly had some very current thought, in a sense, on all of that when you read his letters about police brutality and legalization of marijuana and, you know, a number of other subjects, the treatment of the Native Americans and so on. All of that was in his discussion 50 years ago, and here we are today, 50 years later, still grappling with these issues. And I think that at some point there needs to be movement to resolve some of this. I'm always struck how relevant his work is, and I feel it's, it's very much like Beethoven or Bach or something like that. His writing is ageless. It doesn't belong to a particular era necessarily. And the other thing that's important to me is that when I think of the hundreds of thousands of people around the world who feel like his work has affected their lives for the better, I don't like to get too caught up in his failings because I feel like people tend to want to say, oh, well, he wasn't a perfect person and therefore that trashes all his work. And that is so not useful because his work is extraordinary and it stands on its own. In my experience, every great person, let alone every not great person, we all have our foibles. We all have our things that we have to deal with that are not perfection and whatever is perfection and who says so, you know, that's also up in the air and different for different people. So really, I think his work is extraordinary and makes a difference and should be honored as such just because it is. Mm -hmm. I think one of you said the greater the person, the greater their faults. 
that was my childhood thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I decided when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Joan and Ann Watts. They're the eldest daughters of Ellen Watts, and they have just put together a wonderful new book, The Collected Letters of Alan Watts. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. He wrote lots of very, very interesting letters to people. There's one to Henry Miller in response to reading his work where he commiserates on the quote-unquote air-conditioned nightmare state of the world, that there's no escape from the hell except by going through the heart of it and the tendency to look to an exterior savior for what can only be resolved internally. Mm -hmm. So how did he reconcile his view of the state of the world, which he was very concerned about, with his deeper, non-dual, mystical perspective? Well, I'm not sure that he did. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was always a subject, you know, of concern. And I think it would be difficult to do that in the sense of somebody who is thinking philosophically of how things should be compared to how they are. And how do you reconcile that if it's still going on around you and there isn't adequate movement either right or left to ameliorate those situations? And there was another letter that he wrote where he makes a very interesting point that the Western approach is to take the finite and try to make it infinite. And it's a kind of misuse of the imagination, the opposite of the Oriental approach of recognizing and realizing the infinite in the finite. And I think of this in terms of the way in our Western culture we exploit the resources of the world and we commodify everything and how we're in the process of literally destroying the earth. Right. I, th- I think that's very true. You know, I think you've put that very well. And certainly in this day and age, we can see that resources are not infinite. The possibilities of using them may be infinite. At some point, they're not going to be there. <laughs> and, and then what? It's a dilemma. It's a dilemma, and it's also very paradoxical because there's another interesting letter where he writes to a business professor whose paper he had read, which was titled The Mythology of Methodology, in which he wrote, once you realize it's all a game, things are never the same again. And I think that was something that Alan resonated with that insight. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree with that. That goes hand in hand with his whole playful aspect, mm-hmm. you know, and taking yourself lightly and and getting that it's it's a game. <laughs> I think, you know, for me I think about what's going on in the world and how this is so cyclical, this kind of thing. And so the best thing that we can all do is to find a place of inner peace. And I think one of the roads to that inner peace is taking yourself and the world more lightly. You know, because I think we can just kill ourselves with the over the sense of overburdenness of trying to fix everything. And we can't. We're not going to fix everything. We can do what we can do and then really 
the more we create peace in ourselves, each one individually, the more that peace ripples out, from my perspective. And I think that was a lot of what Alan was about for himself. Mm -hmm. Were there any particular letters that had particular significance for either of you? Some of his correspondence with political people where he was trying to suggest that we don't need certain laws and so on. I think just out of sheer enjoyment or amazement, his letter about my birth I thought was very amusing simply because he couldn't get over the fact that I was an it, basically. He'd, you know, he'd had no experience with young children, being an only child and so on. And when I was born, his letter to his parents described me as it was blowing bubbles, it was crying, screeching or whatever. And finally coming to the point where they needed to name me, and I was a girl that needed a name, and they picked my name Joan, and then they were trying to determine a, a middle name for me. And, of course, at that point, it was the beginning of World War II, and the options were Eleanor or Emily, but that would make my initials very unfortunate because it would be J-E-W, which was kind of shocking, but it was what it was at the time. And I thought that that was kind of a whole interesting thing. And. Like Jones, for me, some of the more political letters towards the end of his life, and one that resonated really strongly with me was his letter about Native Americans and wanting the government to allow them to have their own religious ceremonies and their own way of being because we'd already done enough damage to them as a culture, and they had very different beliefs from us. And so, you know, like the Native American culture feels like that we don't own the land. We are caretakers of the land. We need to take really good care of it. But it's not ours. We don't get to own it. And so I really resonated with that letter. And then for me, one of my favorite letters is that very first letter in the book that he wrote to his father with the drawing of the rabbit procession. There's just something so touching about it and sweet about it that it's really a lovely letter. It's hard to pick a favorite letter. Mm -hmm. Very hard because there's so many good letters. There were so many wonderful, wonderful letters in there. Yeah. So, Joan, you moved back to California for the last few years of Alan's life, and you actually worked with him, you worked for him. What was that like for you? Well, it was kind of interesting in that he didn't have much of a hands-on situation. I was, I guess, for at least a year, the editor of the Alan Watts Journal, and I had a background in graphic arts and did the layout and some of the design and so on, lettering, etc. And then I also was involved with membership for the Society for Comparative Philosophy, basically getting out information to them, publishing a newsletter that went out several times a year, and also arranging some lectures that we did with Alan and other notable people. And it was quite successful. And unfortunately, you know, with his sort of gradually declining health, you know, and interest in such things, you know, they spent a lot of time up at their retreat and not down on the, the Vallejo, which is where the offices were at that point. And 
you know, when he did come down, he was assaulted with a huge pile of mail, fan mail and stuff that he had to look after. And, you know, there was only so much I could do and the secretary that we had could handle. And, you know, Jano was not doing well either. And so it, it was kind of a rough time in a way because I kind of felt a lot like I was holding people together. And, you know, he had his two sons moved in and my husband and I were encumbered with one of them who had a lot of problems. So that was kind of hard to deal with. And I felt like I was a little bit, on, in some fashion, becoming the parent. So, hmm. interesting. So I'm wondering if there were any particular people or favorite people for both of you who were coming through Alan's life and coming to visit him and that you connected with? Well, I think some of our really closest friends were the group that drew at ice. So Elsa Gidlow and Roger Summers and Barbara Summers and his wife. And he had subsequent wives that we were also really close to. Tony Lilly was one of my favorites, and I think she was for Joan as well. She was just an amazing and wonderful woman to start off. Another one who was always so good to me was James Delkin, one of Alan's publishers, who always used to bring me paper and things that I could be creative with. And so I felt cared for by him in that way. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting circle of friends. And Gary Snyder, of course. Michael Murphy is one that I enjoyed when he would, sometimes he would come to the ferry boat, they would have little talks on the ferry boat. Those are the ones that really stand out the most who became our personal friends as well. Gary Snyder was not someone who became a personal friend in a way, but I greatly admire that man. I always did. And he was connected both with our father and with our mother's mother in Japan. I knew him better because I had been around him a lot in Japan. Your father had a wonderful way of drawing amazing, amazing people into a kind of a community around him. Yeah. Yeah, he did. I just thought of another person, Margot St. James, famed coyote madam. (laughs) Cast off your old tired ethics. She was an awesome woman, very talented, amazing. Yeah. Wow, what a wonderful history, what a wonderful story. I understand there's also a new book just out about your grandmother, Ruth and her her last husband, Sokyan, and about the founding of Zen Buddhism in America. And I understand that that your grandmother had a kind of a a funny relationship with your father? Yeah, I I think, you know, because she was his mother-in-law initially and was a very serious student of Zen Buddhism and had actually been accepted in a uh, monastery in Japan in the early 30s where she took very seriously her studies there and, and was eventually accepted. This was the Nanzenji Temple in, in Kyoto, and the monks there eventually allowed her to actually sit with them, and she eventually went through her studies, and then after meeting Sokyan, continued her studies, and then went back to Japan after Sokyan died. She became the first 
Caucasian woman, Caucasian period, to be an abbot of the Rinzai Zen Buddhism and have her own temple in Daitokoji. And so that was quite a feat for somebody from her background and stature. So the book is the story of Sokian and Ruth and how they met and how they created the First Men Institute in America. And what's really fun for us is there are many places where that book overlaps with our book because, of course, Ruth's daughter married our father. And in that book, it tells all of that story from a slightly different perspective, but they completely overlap. And there's a letter from Sokian to Alan in that book. In our book, we didn't mostly publish anybody else's uh, letters because of the complications of getting permissions for that. So it's kind of fun that, that a letter from Sokian to Alan is in this other book called Zen Odyssey by Janica Anderson and Stephen Schwartz. It's really, it's a delightful book. Perhaps, Joan, you could talk about the circumstances of your father's death. Well, as, as it learned throughout the book, of course, he was very addicted to both tobacco and vodka. And I think basically it was eroding his health more than he wanted to admit. But he had gone on a tour in Europe, a month-long tour, where he gave a series of lectures in England. And then I know he was at the Jung Institute and a few other places on the continent as well. And he came back. He was absolutely exhausted. And I didn't actually get to see him between the time he came back and the time he died, but I had several conversations with him that he wanted to know what he could do to pep up his health. He knew that I was a student of health through vitamin therapy and good eating habits, etc. Anyway, he called and asked me, and I had suggested that he see his doctor and so on. And he just very quietly slipped away one night, and that was it. And Jano found him cold and still in the morning when she woke up and called the family doctor and shortly after she'd made a call to him this troop of monks that would hike around Mount Tamalpais they were kind of fire watchers to make sure that there were no fires and so on and during the course of the evening when they were sitting around a campfire Alan appeared to them and they knew at that point that he had died and they appeared in the morning and took his body to the local mortuary, and um, that was kind of how that all happened. And didn't you have an experience of his presence? Oh, yeah, I did. I, You know, we were sitting, looking at his things, and Anne claimed she wasn't there, but I say she was there. I was leaning on the chair that he always sat on. It was a hard, teak Chinese chair, and I just suddenly felt like I had my arms over his legs. It was very strange and was <laughs> kind of startling. He had always told people that he felt that he was being spied on by the federal government for his views on various things. And he said if he was, he would come back. There was a, this large utility pole near his library and place where they lived above near woods. And he said he would come back and blow out the pole, and it did blow out (laughs) after his death. Uh So there were some pretty weird things going on. (laughs) 
I love the conversation. I love the book. And I'm so grateful to both of you so much for spending this time with me. Thank well, you. we greatly appreciate you inviting us to do this. And be well. All right, you too. Bye for now. Bye-bye. And that was Joan and Anne Watts. They are the eldest daughters of Alan Watts. And they just put together a wonderful new book, The Collected Letters of Alan Watts. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. We're going to hear part of a talk by Alan Watts from YouTube. We are playing a game. And the game runs like this. The only thing you really know is what you can put into words. Let's suppose I love some girl. Rapturously. And somebody says to me, would you really love her? Or how am I going to prove this? Well, say, uh, write poetry. Tell us all how much you love her. Then we'll believe you. So if I'm an artist and I can put this into words and convince everybody that I've written the most ecstatic love letters ever written, they say, all right, okay, we, we'll admit it. You really do love her. But supposing you're not very articulate, are we going to tell you you don't love her? Surely not. You don't have to be Heloise and Abelard to be in love. So, the whole game that our culture is playing is that nothing really happens unless it's in the newspaper. So, we're, when we are at a party, and there's a great party, somebody said, it's too bad there wasn't a tape recorder. And so our children begin to feel that they don't exist authentically unless they get their names in the papers. And the fastest way of getting your name in the papers is to commit a crime. And then you'll be photographed, then you'll appear in court, and everybody will notice you. It really happened if it was recorded. In other words, if you shout and it doesn't, doesn't come back an echo, it didn't happen. Well, that's a real hang-up. It's true, there's fun with echoes. We all like singing in the bathtub because there's more resonance there. And when we play a musical instrument like a violin or a cello, it has a sounding box because that gives resonance to the sound. And in the same way, the cortex of the human brain enables us when we are happy to know that we're happy. And that gives a certain resonance to it. If you're happy and you don't know you're happy, there's nobody home. <laughs> But this is the whole problem for us. Several thousand years ago, human beings evolved the system of self-consciousness. And uh, they knew, they, they knew. There was a young man who said, though, it seems that I know that I know. What I would like to see is the I that knows me when I know that I know that I know. You see? And, and this is uh, the human 
problem. We know that we know. And so there came a point in our evolution when we didn't guide life by just trusting our instincts and had to think about it and had to purposely arrange and discipline and push our lives around in accordance with foresight and words and systems of symbols, accountancy, calculation, and so on. And then we worry. Once you start thinking about things, you worry as to whether you've thought enough. Did you really take all the details into consideration? Was every fact properly reviewed? And by Jove, the more you think about it, the more you realize that uh, you really couldn't take everything into consideration because all the variables in any human decision are incalculable. So you get anxiety. And this, though, also, this is the price you pay for knowing that you know, for being able to think about thinking, to feel about feeling. And so you're in this funny position. Now then, do you see that this is simultaneously an advantage and a terrible disadvantage? What has happened here is that by having a certain kind of consciousness, a certain kind of reflexive consciousness, being aware of being aware, being able to represent what goes on fundamentally in terms of a system of symbols, such as words, such as numbers. You put, as it were, two lives together at once, one representing the other. The symbols representing the reality, the money representing the wealth. And if you don't realize that the symbol is really secondary, it doesn't have the same value. You know, people go to the supermarket and they uh, get a whole cartload of goodies and they drive it through. And then the clerk fixes up the counter and this long tape comes out. And you say, $30, please. And everybody feels depressed. Because <laughs> they, they give away $30 worth of paper. But they've got a cartload of goodies. They don't think about that. They think they just lost, lost $30. But you've got the real wealth in the cart. All you parted with was the paper. Because the paper in our system becomes more valuable than the wealth. It represents power, potentiality. Whereas the wealth, you think, oh well, that's just necessary. You've got to eat. Well, I mean, that's to be really mixed up. So then, if you awaken from this illusion and you understand that black implies white, self implies other, life implies death, or shall I say, death implies life. You can feel yourself, not as a stranger in the world, not as something here on probation, 
not as something that has arrived here by fluke, but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental. What you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. So, say in Hindu mythology, they say that the world is the drama of God. God is not something in Hindu mythology with a white beard that sits on a throne and that has royal prerogatives. God in, in Indian mythology is the self, Satchitananda, which means Sat, that which is, Chit, that which is consciousness, that which is Ananda is bliss. And in other words, re, the, the, what exists, reality itself, is gorgeous. It is the plenum, the fullness of total joy. Wow, we. And all those stars, if you look out in the sky, as a firework display, like you see on the 4th of July, which is a great occasion for celebration, the universe is a celebration. It is a firework show to celebrate that existence is. Wow, we. And then they say, but however, there's no point just in sustaining bliss. Let's suppose that you were able every night to dream any dream you wanted to dream. And that you could, for example, have the power within one night to dream 75 years of time. Or any length of time you wanted to have. And you would naturally, as you began on this adventure of dreams, you would fulfill all your wishes. You would have every kind of pleasure you could conceive. And after several nights of 75 years of total pleasure each, you would say, well, that was pretty great. But now let's, um, let's have a surprise. Let's have a dream which isn't under control where something is going to happen to me that I don't know what it's going to be. And uh, you, you would dig that. Because the whole nature of the Godhead, according to this idea, is to play that he's not. The first thing he says to himself is, man, get lost. Because he gives himself away. The nature of love is self-abandonment, not clinging to oneself, throwing yourself out, as in, for example, in basketball, you're always getting rid of the ball. You say to the other fellow, have a ball, see? And uh, that, that keeps things moving. That's the nature of life. So in this idea then, everybody is fundamentally the ultimate reality, not God in a politically kingly sense, but God in the sense of being the self, the deep down basic whatever there is. And you're all that, only you're pretending you're not. And it's perfectly okay to pretend you're not, to be absolutely convinced because this is the whole notion of drama. When you come into the theater, there is a proscenium arch 
and a stage, and down there is the audience. And everybody assumes their seats in the theater and uh, are going to see a comedy, a tragedy, a thriller, or whatever it is. And they all know, as they come in and pay their admissions, that what is going to happen on the stage is not for real. But the actors have a conspiracy against this because they're going to try and persuade the audience that what is happening on the stage is for real. They want to get everybody sitting on the edge of their chairs. They want to get you terrified or crying or laughing. Ab absolutely captivated by the drama. And if a skillful human actor can take in an audience and make people cry, think what the cosmic actor can do. Why, he can take himself in completely. He can play so much for real that he really believes it is. Like you sitting in this room, you think you're really here. Why, you've persuaded yourself that way. You've acted it so damn well that you know this is the real world. But you're playing it. It's because the audience and the actor is one. Because behind the stage, there's the green room. Off-scene, obscene, where the actors take off their masks. You know that the word person means mask? The persona, which is the mask worn by actors in Greco-Roman drama, because it has a megaphone-type mouth, which throws the sound out in an open-air theater. So pair through, sona, what the sound comes through, that's the mask. How to be a real person? How to be a genuine fake, <laughs> a mask. So the dramatis personae at the beginning of a play is the list of masks that the actors will wear. And so in the course of forgetting that this, this life is a drama, the word for the role, the word for the mask has come to mean who you are genuinely, the person, the proper person. Incidentally, the word parson is derived from the word person. <laughs> the person of the village. Person around town, the parson. Funny. So anyway then, this is the drama. I'm not trying to sell you on this idea in the sense of converting you to it. I want you to play with it. I want you to think of its possibilities. I'm not trying to prove it. I'm just putting it forward as a possibility of life to think about. So then, this means that you are not victims of a scheme of things, of a mechanical world, or of an autocratic god. The life you are living is what you have put yourself into. Only you don't admit it, because you want to play the game that it's happened to you. In other words, I got mixed up in this world. My parents, I had a father who got hot pants over a girl and she was my mother. And uh, because he got, he was, just a, he was just a horny old man. And as a result of that, I got born. And I blame him for it and say, well, that's your fault. You've got to look after me. And he says, I don't see why I should look after you. You're just a result. <laughs> and, but let's suppose we admit that I really wanted to get born and that I was the ugly gleam in my father's eye when he approached my mother. That was me. I was desire. 
And I deliberately got involved in this thing. Look at it that way instead. And that even if I got myself into an awful mess, and I got born with syphilis and the great Siberian itch and tuberculosis and uh, in a Nazi concentration camp, nevertheless, this was a game which was a very far out play. It was a kind of cosmic masochism. But I did it. Isn't that an optimal game rule for life? Because if you play life on the supposition that you're a helpless little puppet that got involved, or if you play it on the supposition that it's a, a frightful, serious risk and that we really ought to do something about it and uh, so on, it's a drag. <laughs> There's no point in going on living unless we make the assumption that the situation of life is optimal. That really and truly we are all in a state of total bliss and delight. But we are going to pretend we aren't just for kicks. You play non-bliss in order to be able to experience bliss. And you can go as far out as non-bliss as you want to go. And when you wake up, it'll be great. You know, you can slam yourself on the head with a hammer because it's so nice when you stop. And it makes you realize, you see, how, how great things are when you forget that that's the way it is. And that's just like black and white. You don't know black unless you know white. You don't know white unless you know black. This is simply fundamental. So then, here's the drama. My metaphysics, let me be perfectly frank with you, are that there is the central self. You can call it God. You can call it anything you like. And it's all of us. It's playing all the parts of all beings whatsoever, everywhere and anywhere. And it's playing the game of hide and seek with itself. It gets lost, it gets involved in the farthest out adventures, but in the end, it always wakes up and comes back to itself. And when you're ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. And uh, since you're all here and engaged in this sort of inquiry and listening to this sort of lecture, I assume that you're all on the process of waking up. Or else you're teasing yourselves with some kind of uh, flirtation with waking up, which you're not serious about. But I assume maybe you are, not serious but sincere, that you are ready to wake up. So then, when you're in the way of waking up and finding out who you really are, you meet a character called a guru. As the Hindus say, this word, the teacher, the awakener. And what is the function of a guru? He's the man who looks at you in the eye and says, oh, come off it. <laughs> I know who you are. You know, you come to the guru and say, Sir, I have a problem. I'm unhappy and I want to get one up on the universe or I want to become enlightened. I want spiritual wisdom. Ah, and the guru looks at you and says, Who are you? You know Sri Ramana Maharshi, that great Hindu sage 
of modern times, people used to come to him and say, Master, who was I in my last incarnation? As if that mattered. And he would say, who is asking the question? And he'd look at you and say, basically, go right down to it. You're looking at me, you're looking out, and you're unaware of what's behind your eyes. Go back in and find out who you are, where the question comes from, why you ask. And if you've looked at a photograph of that man, I have a gorgeous photograph of him. And you look in those, I walk by it every time I go out of the front door. And I look at those eyes and the humor in them, the lilting laugh that says, oh, come off it, man. <laughs> Shiva, I recognize you. When you come to my door and you say, I'm so-and-so, I say, ha ha, what a funny way God has come on today. <laughs> uh, there are all sorts of tricks, of course, that gurus play. They uh, say, well, we're going to put you through the mill. And the reason they do that is simply that you won't wake up until you feel you've paid a price for it. In other words, the sense of guilt that one has, or the sense of anxiety, is simply the way one experiences keeping the game of disguise going on. Do you see that? Supposing you say, I feel guilty. Christianity makes you feel guilty for existing. That somehow, the very fact that you exist is an affront. You are a fallen human being. I remember as a child when we went to the services of the church on Good Friday, they gave us each a colored postcard with Jesus crucified on it. And it said underneath, This have I done for thee, what doest thou for me? You know, you felt off. You nailed that man to the cross. Because you eat steak, you have crucified Christ. Because they kill the bull. After all, you depend on it. Mithra. It's the same mystery. And what are you going to do about that? This have I done for thee. What doest thou for me? You feel awful that you just exist at all. But that sense, that sense of guilt, is the veil across the sanctuary. Don't you dare come in. In order to, you know, in all mysteries, when you're going to be initiated, there's somebody saying, ah, 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 don't you come in. You've got to fulfill this requirement, and this requirement, and this requirement, and this requirement, then we'll let you in. And so you go, you, you, you go through the mill. Why? Because this is, you're saying to yourself, I won't wake up until I feel I deserve it. I won't wake up until I've made it difficult for me to wake up. So I, I, I invent for myself an elaborate system of delaying my waking up. I put myself through this test and that test and when I feel it's been sufficiently arduous, then I may at last admit to myself who I really am and draw aside the veil and realize 
that after all, when all is said and done, I am that I am, which is the name of God. And when it comes to it, that's really rather funny. They say in Zen, when you attain Satori, nothing is left to you at that moment but to have a good laugh. But naturally, uh, all masters, Zen masters, yoga masters, every kind of master, uh, puts up a barrier and says to you, he simply plays your own game. You know, we say anybody who goes to a psychiatrist ought to have his head examined. Because you, when you go to a psychiatrist, you define yourself as somebody who ought to have his head examined. Same way, uh, the Zen masters say anybody who studies Zen or comes to a Zen master ought to be given 30 blows with a stick. Because he was stupid enough to pose the question that he had a problem. But you're the problem. You, you put yourself in this situation. So it's a question fundamentally. Do you define yourself as a victim of the world or as the world? You can define yourself. You see, if you identify you with what you call the voluntary system of the nerves and say only that's me, and that's really a rather limited amount of my total performance, what I do voluntarily, then you've defined yourself as the victim in the game. And so you are able to feel that life was a trap. Something else, whether it was God or whether it was fate or whether it was uh, the big mechanism, the system, imposed this on you. And you can say, poor little me. But you can equally well, and with just as much justification, define yourself not only as what you do voluntarily, but also what you do involuntarily. That's you too. Do you beat your heart or don't you? Or does it just happen to you? And if you define yourself as the works, then nobody's imposing on you. You're not a victim. You're doing it. Plus, you can't explain how you do it in words because words are too clumsy. And it takes too long to say. You get bored with it. But actually, then you can say, with, with gusto, I am responsible for this life. Whether comedy or tragedy, I did it. And it seems to me that that is a basis for behavior and going on, which is more fundamentally joyous and profitable and uh, great than defining ourselves as miserable victims or sinners, or what have you. And that was Alan Watts, writer, philosopher, and cult countercultural icon of the 60s, 
and the early 70s until his death in 1973. about it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time have a wonderful week <laughs>